that we set out to identify some of these end-time players in the book of Revelation. Uh, the great harlot of Revelation 17 and 18, the beast of Revelation 13 and 17 and 18, and the second beast of Revelation 13, uh, among other players at the end. And to understand the book of Revelation, Daniel, and the other prophecies, it helps to know who is on stage. I challenged some of my old beliefs, and some that we have had for many, many years, uh, and I started with the great harlot, because I think it's important to identify that one perhaps first. And recall that I mentioned the Protestant commentators after they had broken off from the Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation, all looked upon the Catholic Church as that great harlot. Little did they understand that they were the daughters of that church and did not change most of the doctrines of the Catholic Church. They merely put a different window dressing on it and retained the same pagan doctrines uh, that the Catholics had always taught. So, yes, I believe the Catholic Church is a great harlot in a spiritual or religious sense, and that those daughters which came out from her changed very little, and certainly they are daughters of that organization. But I have come to believe that the great harlot of Revelation 17 and 18 is speaking of someone other than the Catholic Church. I'm not saying that religion does not play its part at the end time, and I think we will see the religions which have taken over the Israelitish people identified as a player in the end time as well. But I believe it is someone different from what we always believed. Now I realize, starting today, <clears throat> that I have not in any way defined America as that great harlot, or the head of that harlot at least. I have simply introduced the fact through Ezekiel 16, Hosea 1, and other scriptures perhaps, and I have another one to give you today if I get to it, if not, uh, possibly next week, to show that God looks upon Israel in the end time as a great harlot. Uh, he looked upon her as a harlot when Christ divorced her for harlotries uh, historically, and Ezekiel was written sometime after that destruction, that captivity occurred. So it had to be for a future event. Israel, at least the ten nations, have been lost. It seems very few know who Israel is today. And yet the promises that God made to Abraham concerning those who would proceed from him, those prophecies are very clear. And we have to examine, and I think most of us here by now have proved in our own minds that Western Europe, the United States, South Africa, Australia, the white Anglo-Saxon peoples for the most part are Israel. Uh, where in what phone books do you look up names like Isaacson and Jacobson and Jacobs? Do you do it in the Hong Kong directory? Or you do it in the American and English and Northwestern Europe directories? And there are many, many, many proofs to show that. But God looks upon Israel at the end as a harlot. Not only that, but Ezekiel 16 describes her as a great harlot. 
And then we went through to show that she has many daughters. So she is also a mother of harlots. Now, let's pick it up again in chapter 17 of Revelation. I'm breaking into the context here on purpose. We'll make some identifications. Then we will go more directly into some of the specific prophecies about it. But uh, today we will get into more of the definition of the harlot at the end. So far, I've only shown you that God looks upon Israel as a great harlot and a mother of harlots. But does that fit Revelation 17, 18, uh, Isaiah 47, and Jeremiah 50 and 51? Is it the same harlot, in other words, that God is speaking of? We'll examine that today. So picking it up again in Revelation 17, one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, said to me, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. And we define from verse 15 that the waters are many, many peoples, nations uh, around the earth. So waters are symbolic of peoples in this context. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And I think it is obvious, and I dwelt on this some last week, that America has, has the greatest influence of any peoples and nation upon the world. It is our culture, if you can call it that, that is spread around the world via TV, radio, uh, music discs, and so on, uh, politically, every way. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. So it isn't, the, the beast nowhere is depicted as religious, but this beast is scarlet-colored, wearing bright colors. In other words, it's to be shown off. It is to be seen. It is not mousy sitting in the corner, but wears bright clothing. Wants to be seen. Wants to have preeminence and dominance over everything else. Full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Blasphemy is against God. And the new world order that we see arising today is against God in every way. It is basically ruled over and peopled by those who have accepted humanism, Christian scientists uh, and various others, that animals are as good as, probably better than, human beings. They won't kill animals, they won't kill insects, but our whole culture aborts babies by the millions. So insects and spotted owls and all those things are more important in the eyes of our people today in our culture than our human lives. Woeful and pitiful, but true. So those who are beginning to rule in America and around the world <coughs> do have blasphemous thoughts, denying the God of creation, accepting Darwinism, evolution, accepting humanism, and various other religious ideas. And we are increasingly in this country being taken over by Islam and by Hinduism and Buddhism. Transcendental meditation is taking on. And as many people are doing that, I think, today almost as are working out in gymnasiums. Because the Eastern demonic religions are taking over our culture. 
But that's talking about the beast in particular, and I want to concentrate on the harlot. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. That's the main proof people have used to show that this was the Catholic Church. But the Catholic Church is not the only ones that wear gay clothing in that sense. And America is known for having plenty and wearing whatever we want, whenever we want. Decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. And what are the uh, watchwords of our culture today? We want to dress up to look good. Almost every advertisement you see makes you want to look good or smell good or feel good. We are a sensory uh, well, that, that escapes me. We go by our senses. We're sensual in that sense. We want to please the five senses. <clears throat> Having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. So we're rich. We don't just hold up a little pewter mug. We hold up a golden mug, an expensive mug, but in spite of our economic and material wealth and gain, it's full of sin. Our culture is certainly wealthy <clears throat> materially. The wealthiest nation, the wealthiest peoples that have ever been. And yet, our culture is filled with sin. Upon our forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So, there's a mystery about this, a mystery that needs to be uncovered, and I think that this mystery could not be uncovered 100 years ago, 200 years ago, three or 500 years ago, because the end time table or stage was not yet set. But today it is pretty well set. And we need to look at the realities of what is going on in the world, not the ideas of some Protestant pulling away from the Catholic Church two or three or four hundred years ago. We must look at what is on the stage today and define it in end-time terms, not the eyes of a monk or a preacher who had a very, very different perspective several hundred years ago. So this mystery is something that probably is unveiled or revealed at the end, because this is an end-time book about the things that would happen at the end of the age. So this is a mystery, and it encompasses and entails Babylon, and I spent considerable time last week showing how the Babylonian symbols have infiltrated and been promulgated and purposely put in America, those things did not happen by happenstance. They were planned that way by people who subscribed to the Babylonian mystery system. That is, the system that goes back to Babel, really back to Cain, but which was put forth by Nimrod and Semiramis in their various reincarnations in various nations, whether it be the Greeks who had Zeus and so on, to whom they dedicated the Olympics, or whether it be to... Isis and Osiris or in Egypt, wherever you go, the mother and child, the Madonna, is seen. And it all came from Babel long before Mary gave birth to Christ. So this mysterious system will include the symbols, the doctrines, the gods of Babylon, if you will. Sun worship, Christmas, and Easter. 
the Christmas tree representing a full-grown evergreen that sprang up alive after Nimrod died. And Semiramis said, See, my son is resurrected in a tree. And she decked it with ornaments, and it's described in Jeremiah 10. Ezekiel describes the queen of heaven, and that is sun worship, and Easter very clearly. So this great harlot <coughs> is part and parcel with the ancient mysteries of Babylon, whoever she is, and abominations of the earth. Homosexuality is rife. Adultery, fornication is everywhere. Living in instead of marrying is common. It doesn't matter where you go in our society, you find woeful sins that are against the laws, the ordinances, the statutes, and the covenants of God. And we spread those around the world by every way we can to gain money for us and to spread sin to others. All right, we got to verse 6 last time, and I stopped before we addressed it, <clears throat> because this might be really the first real objection someone might bring up. <clears throat> and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now, it has been stated historically that the Catholic Church persecuted and killed Christians, and perhaps to some degree that is true. But when you really understand what happened in the Crusades and in the Middle Ages and even before, from the end of the first century A.D. on, when the Catholic Church really came into prominence and God's Church basically disappeared after 70 years of existence, from roughly 30, 31 A.D. until 100 A.D., and then it disappeared with the last standing Apostle John. So about 70 years, and God's people had either gone into apostasy and departed, as in today, or disappeared. The ones that the Catholics primarily persecuted over the ages were not true Christians. We need to understand that. She persecuted the Protestants who broke off. Those were the ones she burned. Not true Christians who were keeping God's Sabbath, God's holy days, who understood the plan of salvation, and were truly following the Bible as opposed to following some Protestant reformers who left and did not go to the Bible as a source of their authority, except for a very few verses which they followed. But this is an end-time book written to an end-time church. Now, let's go to Matthew 24. We'll come back here in a little while. But Matthew 24 is one that we are all very familiar with. And it's speaking of God's church. That's how it starts out. Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And we know from many, many scriptures that those who are converted are the temple. Now, he was speaking of the physical temple which still remained here specifically. And yet, he projected this prophecy to the end time. And the temple that he spoke of then, that physical building, has long since been destroyed. 2,000 years ago it was destroyed. And this is an Olivet prophecy for the end time church, just preceding the return of Christ, as you see later on in the chapter. 
So his disciples came to him, but are showing the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, See you not all these things? Truly I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. That physical temple was thrown down. But within about 70 years of this prophecy, even the spiritual temple had been torn to the ground. The ministry was gone. The church had gone into apostasy, and very, very little remained. There may have been a few individuals who continued to keep the gospel of Jesus Christ, but most had gone to the syncretized gospel of the Catholic Church, which had inculcated Babylonian mystery systems into itself. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? They understood, at least to some degree, that he wasn't only talking of that physical temple, or that if he was, Christ would return before that temple was destroyed. That was probably the limit of their understanding at that point. But the question they put to him, what will be the sign of his coming in the end of the world? And that is the question he answered. It wasn't the question that is implied about that physical temple, but they asked specifically what would be the signs of his return and the end of the world. That is the question he answers in the rest of this chapter. Jesus answered and said to them, Take ye that no man deceive you. Be very, very careful. Think today as I speak. Don't let any man deceive you. Be careful. Think. Consider. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. We're in a world today that has rumors of war, Wars and rumors of war, has both. We just recently concluded a war, if you can call it that, in Iraq, after one in Afghanistan, after one in Kosovo, you know, on back we can go. And we hear rumors of more in Iran or Saudi Arabia or North Korea or wherever that we would be involved in, in Zaire, wherever you want to go. The continent of Africa is full of wars. Today, you don't hear much about it because that's just Africans. They're unimportant to our culture and society for the most part, although we are finally sending some help to those in Liberia. But we see a world that is full of wars and rumors of wars, so we know the time is drawing near. But all this must come to pass, but the end is not yet. You're going to see this, but there are other events that must occur, he says. Not quite yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. We have millions of people today who are starving to death around this world. It's hard for us to imagine that as we sit in America today, because we are not exposed to it. We still have plenty to eat, more than enough to eat, and America as a whole is obese, far too much. But that's not true all over the world. <clears throat> but there are famines 
and there are disease pestilences spreading. And the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta expects, they know, that sooner or later something is going to get loose on the same level of the flu that killed millions and millions in the late 1800s, early 1900s, whenever it was. They just know what's going to happen. Something's going to mutate and get loose that is going to kill millions of people. Maybe it's not West Nile, maybe it's not SARS, but then AIDS has already killed millions, hasn't it? So there are already are pestilences. Parts of Africa, there are 40, 50, and 60 percent of the people who have AIDS, or at least that uh, HIV, which leads to AIDS. And we see increasing earthquakes around the world. Just had one the other day in Greece. We're in the time of the end. All these are the beginning of sorrows. This is just where it starts. Then, what comes next? Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. He's talking to his disciples, soon to become apostles here. In other words, addressing the leadership of the church of God in whatever form it might take at the end time. Because this is an end time prophecy about the return of Christ. It wasn't specifically about them, though they at that time thought so. They thought they would live until that time. But it was still a couple of thousand years off. So the you has to be translated or perceived in terms of the end time, not of their time. It did happen to them, didn't it? Most of the apostles were martyred, and many of the people in the church were. And Paul himself, before he became converted, was killing Christians every time he got a chance. Every time he could identify one, he killed it. So there was a fulfillment then, but we're looking beyond that to return of Christ as this chapter goes on. So there is to be a martyrdom of saints at the end. Could that possibly be what John 17, 6 is talking, I mean Revelation 17, 6 is talking about? Where is that persecution going to take place? Well, it would seem to me it would have to take place where God's true believers are. Where are most Sabbath keepers and followers of the Bible today? Most are in the United States and Canada and throughout Northwest Europe and Australia and South Africa. You don't find many Sabbath keepers in Hunan province. You don't find them in North Korea. You don't find them in Malaysia. You don't find them in Africa. You find them in Northwest Europe and the United States and those pieces of the British Empire, now defunct basically, which are scattered around the earth. That's where you find it. There are people scattered around the world, in South America and various other places, in small numbers. But most of those Sabbath keepers, and remember that is the sign between God and his people, was the Sabbath. And by extension, the Sabbaths, including the Holy Days. Because in Leviticus 23, it mentions the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath first, and then in the same context, begins to explain the Holy Days that we are to keep. So where do you find people who keep the Sabbath and God's holy days today? 
mostly 90% of them are in the United States, at least that we know of. So, if you're going to persecute and kill those people, where do you have to go to do it? Where they are. I think that should be obvious. That means the majority of the persecution, then, would have to take place in those areas where most of the Sabbath and Holy Day keepers are. That would be in the countries I just described, because they aren't anywhere else except in small numbers. So, they'll deliver us up in this country to be killed here. And you shall be hated of all peoples for my name's sake. This is going to be a persecution that becomes worldwide, but most of it will be centered here because that's where most of those true believers are. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. Now, we already have a divided, cracked church with many breaches, as described in Isaiah 58 and other places. Already in turmoil. I'm speaking of people who keep the Sabbath and the holy days and the other testimony of Christ. Shattered and cracked. But it has not reached this proportion except spiritually. Now, this is happening on a spiritual level right now. The ministry is betraying people wholesale to spiritual death, famine, and pestilence. I think there can be no question of that. A hireling ministry. But I think that this is speaking ultimately of physical death, not just spiritual death, which really is worse. The, the spiritual death is worse. But physical death is what we fear perhaps more than spiritual death in many cases. That's sort of backward, but that's often the way it is. And that which we fear will come upon us. If we're worried about our physical lives more than our spiritual lives, we will lose our physical lives. And that's what people tend to do. But many will be offended and betray one another and shall hate one another, and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity or sin shall abound within God's people, within those descendants, if you will, of the apostles, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. So the end of this age is coming. And these prophecies have to do with that end. And they very, very much have to do with persecution of those who would obey God, those who are obeying God. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. I don't think that's what... Herbert Armstrong did by any means. I think that there are two witnesses coming to do that. He's dead. He's gone. He did a calling work. He did Matthew 28, last two verses. Made disciples of many nations and peoples. But he didn't do this. This is right at the end. Then shall the end come. When you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, and we are the temple of God, remember. Let him who reads understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. And then is going to come a tribulation such as never been. And we are familiar with that. And he says, except those days should be shortened, there would no flesh be saved alive. Well, that didn't happen in the first century A.D., but it's, it is now possible to destroy all human flesh 
by means of man's devices. So there is a great persecution coming. Read Ezekiel 5. talks about how one-third will die of famine and pestilence, and one-third be taken into captivity and a sword set after them. We're very familiar with those, but they tie in with the famine and pestilences and sword of Matthew 24, and with the persecution on true saints at the end, as we see in Revelation 17:6. I don't know why, but I've always more or less perceived that the persecution on true believers would come from our own government. I don't know, it's just where we are. And I did not think the beast would do it. This is something that happens before the abomination of desolation is set up and before we flee for our lives. So it's something that happens to us before those events. So there is a great persecution coming. A mark of the beast will be instituted. We'll, we'll see that more later on. And we'll see how the religious community is involved in that before we're done with this series. So, you could say this is the Catholic Church, perhaps, or you could say that it could be our own government coming down on true Christians, Sabbath keepers. So, this hasn't defined anything for sure yet, has it? But I think it's clear that there is an end-time persecution coming that has not yet occurred. And we might as well be ready for it, prepared for it, spiritually prepared. There is an end-time confrontation, and that is what Revelation 17.6 is talking about in companion with other scriptures. So this woman, this harlot, whoever she might be, is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And then I saw her, and when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. This is an incredible harlot with power unparalleled in the history of the earth. No time before has any nation or people had the capacity to do whatever they wished, whenever they wished, anywhere on the planet. The Babylonian, the Persian, Medo-Persian, the Greek, the Roman empires were limited basically to Eurasia. <coughs> Today, we can dominate anywhere we wish on the earth by means of airplanes and modern weaponry. The world wonders with great admiration. They hate us, they're jealous, but there has to be a great awe in terms of what can be done. And it was even termed in Iraq, shock and awe. All right, let's go on. And the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. So the angel is going to tell John, and we're going to see it in the following context, what this mystery is all about, and of the beast that carries the woman. Carries here, in the Greek, is number 941 in Strong's. It's the word bastadzo, which means lifts or bears up or receives the woman. So this beast lies down and 
takes on the woman, the harlot. The beast that you saw was and is not. I'm not going to take time to try to define these next few verses in detail except to pick a point out of here. We'll come back to this later on when we discuss the beast itself. There have been many theories about who this might be talking about. Uh, members of the UN, leaders of the UN, and New World Order, and various ones. But let's not get into that. Let's move on. Uh, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and, and go into perdition. So this beast is right at the end. Uh, it's talking of the beast and the false prophet, which in the chapter 19, Christ takes by the scruff of the neck and throws into a lake of fire. So this beast and the, the uh, false prophet last until the end. But we will see that this harlot, this woman, is destroyed before then. So the beast and the false prophet are still intact when Christ returns, but this harlot dies before then. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Here again we see a confrontation between the whole world and the true believers and the Father and the Son. Everyone who is not written in the book of the life is going to stand in great awe and admiration of this beast. So it's the whole world whom Satan has deceived against God's true believers, wherever and whomever they may be. That's what the stage is being set for. Uh, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is, and here is the mind which has wisdom, the seven heads are seven mountains or governments on which the woman sits, and there are seven kings, five are fallen, one is, the other is not yet come. When he comes, he must continue a short space, and the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, and goes into perdition. So the last one is one that's thrown into that lake of fire. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings. We've always equated this to the Roman Empire and perhaps there is a fulfillment through history in terms of that. But notice something about this one, and this is the point I wanted to make. These ten kings, these ten horns, which have received no kingdom as yet, there's something that are to come. Now we're talking in the context, remember, of this great harlot, whomever she might be, and she is on the scene, and yet this beast, even though the woman is on the scene, has not yet come into sight. They have not yet been given power, kingship, rulership, whatever. They've received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast, a very short period of time. So the harlot is already on the scene before the beast comes fully into view. These kings have not yet today received power, and yet I submit to you that the harlot can be very much in view. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength to the beast. So these ten kings, ten horns, whomever they might be, give all of their uh, influence, all of their power, all their strength to the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb. So, this beast, these ten kings, last until the end. But as we'll see here in a moment, 
they destroy the great harlot, whoever she is. And this beast, these ten kings, will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. They think they're pretty hot, but he's stronger. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So there is a process of salvation that includes a calling, a choosing, and then a period of time to show faithfulness. What was the big sin of ancient Israel and why they were divorced in the first place? unfaithfulness. So God wants his bride, or the bride-to-be of Christ, to be faithful. And faithfulness has to be proven over a period of time. It's not something you make the day, the day the wedding vows are made, and then you're reckoned as faithful from then on, because it takes a period of time before that faithfulness can be shown. So there is a process of salvation that goes on. But these will come with Christ when he returns. We won't get into that, but we understand, don't we, that we rise to meet him in the air if we are dead and faithful in Christ, or if we are alive and remain, we rise to meet him in the air. And I believe we go and are married to Christ at that point and spend a year having a honeymoon in heaven and then come back and he destroys the Gentile kingdoms at that point and takes rulership of the earth. We rule with him a thousand years because we'll always be with Christ wherever he is from that time that we rise to meet him and thenceforward. I said we wouldn't get into that, but I'll explain it briefly. Not go to all the scriptures. Anyway, now we get back to the great harlot. Understanding that the harlot and the beast are together for a short time. And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the whore sits are people and multitudes and nations and tongues, many, many peoples, in other words, and the ten horns which you saw upon the beast, these ten kings who have power for a short while or an hour with the beast shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. The whore, the harlot, this great mystery Babylon will be destroyed by the beast, but the beast will remain. So if you try to say that, well, the whole earth is Babylonian, that in an overall sense is true. Yet this is a specific entity being defined here that will be killed by other people on the earth who also are part of the satanic Babylonian system. But this entity on the stage, the end of the age, is one that dies, burned with fire, made desolate. And it'll show violence here in a little while. Now, does this, does this conflict with our traditional view of what would happen to Israel? No, it doesn't. Because if we are the peoples of Israel, and we are destroyed, that fits the punishment that God has shown throughout all the prophecies for end-time Israel. Not a problem. Can you both be Israel and a great whore? I think we've already seen that in Ezekiel 16, Hosea 1, and other places. Yes, you can. 
Now, is it us? And I'm including here Great Britain and the other, other Israelitish nations whom we feel we have defined, but America is the head. We are indisputably today the leader of all those peoples. And the prophecies talk about Judah, and they talk about Jacob. They talk about all the tribes being destroyed here at the end. So it's not just America, but certainly you have to consider the America itself to be the leader of the Babylonian system that we see today. For God has put in their hearts, verse 17, to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. In other words, there are some words of God about this, perhaps written in the prophecies in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the, the minor prophets, all the way through. The words of God, which he had written, will be fulfilled on this great harlot. And the woman which you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Which city today rules over the kings of the earth? Is it Istanbul? Is it Tokyo? Is it Hong Kong? Is it Johannesburg? Is it Zurich? Which city today has greatest influence over all the kings of the earth? I would pencil in Washington, D.C. Because Washington, D.C. represents the economic and military might of America and of Britain and the rest of Israel, for that matter, our coalition. Just as Babylon was a city that ruled over and was symbolic of the Chaldean Empire. It wasn't just the city, but as I explained before, we often use a city to delineate which country we're talking about. We don't always say the United Kingdom or England, we say London or Washington or Rio de Janeiro, whatever country you want to talk about. Often refer to, in politics, Japan as Tokyo. And the same is here, because many of the prophecies, which we'll get into later on in Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and so on, uh, speak of Babylon and the Chaldean Empire in tandem. You cannot separate them in that sense. Anybody have another candidate for a city which has domination over the whole earth? And, and after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. So he, he lays out here about a beast and a harlot. Now another angel comes, and we're going to see detail added. Now we're going to get into a chapter which adds definition to this harlot. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit in a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. What do we see in America today? Harry Potter books. 
witchcraft being disseminated from the United Kingdom, part of Israel, to America, and to the rest of the world by the millions and millions. We see all kinds of movies which deal with science fiction and demonism. Witchcraft in this country is increasing by leaps and bounds. The secret societies are into demonism, Satanism, and witchcraft. It is something we do hiddenly and something we are doing increasingly openly. Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils. So he puts it clearly with demonism and Satanism here, and the hold of every foul spirit in the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Do we have clean and unclean still, still today? Even in the book of Revelation, it talks about that which is clean and that which is unclean. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornications. Not just some, but all. Does that fit the Catholic Church so far? The Catholic Church, even though it calls itself a universal church, has very limited influence on the earth today. The end-time stage as we see it. It has almost taken over completely South America. It is almost completely in charge in Italy. Uh, there is a high percentage in Spain and Portugal of Catholics. There's a smattering in the United States percentage-wise. Uh, some of the nations of Europe, even Germany, is, I think, 60% Catholic. No, 60% Lutheran, 40% Catholic, basically, with a smattering of other Protestantism. But Catholics have made few inroads into Asia, into the Middle East, uh, into North America, the major populations of the earth are untouched, basically, by Catholicism. America, on the other hand, touches all nations. And we'll see how it touches all nations in a little bit in ways that the Catholic Church simply cannot do. Now, it mentions Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and I think we'll probably return to that because once we get some definitions made, I think it'll make more sense what the double falling here is talking about. I'm not going to ignore that. We will come back to it. All nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Has the world become drunk with the things that have been exported from the Catholic Church or with the things that are exported from America? When I go to Africa, to Europe, to Asia, to Australia, and I've been to those places, and I turn on a TV, do I find programs submitted by the Catholic Church, or do I find them all coming from America? Ninety-eight percent of them. The whole world is drunk on our fornications. You lose perception. Hard to know just where to put your feet. How to walk, where to go, how to live. Is America causing the whole world to lose perception and perspective of where they're going and what's important? What's important to Americans? Lots of money and lots of entertainment. And the bawdier that entertainment gets increasingly, the more we seem to like it. And the more of it we export 
and cause other peoples, if they had any perspective and perception, to lose that too. And as we stumble along, not following God as a people, we are causing other people to follow those same paths and stumble along as well with us. You also lose conviction when you're drunk. You may have moral convictions, economic convictions, a way of managing your money and your life. But when you become drunk, those convictions go away. We become loosey-goosey in many, many different ways. And we see a nation today and a people and a world that has lost perspective, perception, and conviction and where it is headed and what is important. A world that has gone against God, away from God, does not even recognize God for the most part anymore. And indeed, as Christ said, you worship, you know not what. The Jews of his days, who were supposedly the holy ones, he said, were worshiping Satan the devil. How much worse is it today? All right, let's go on in verse 3. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That basically is a moral decline, a cultural decline. All nations have partaken of our cultural decline via the media and via examples of our people, our armed services people who have gone overseas. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. All right, there's political and government, or governmental involvement. So, on a social and moral level, on a political level, and then lastly, thirdly, and the, wa and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. So there is economic concourse, or intercourse, if you want to say, in this example. All aspects of our society are affecting the world. Can you say that of the Catholic Church? Have the nations or merchants of the earth waxed rich through the abundance of the delicacies of the Catholic Church? Give me a break here. The Catholic Church has raped, ravaged, and pillaged nations. A whole continent in South, Af South America <coughs> took all the wealth of the Aztecs, the in uh, Incas, and everyone else back to Rome. They haven't made anybody rich. They've made themselves rich. So this woman, whoever she is, will have to have made the merchants of the earth rich. I think that lets out the Catholic Church. This is one means of defining. And that one becomes a very, very important one as we go on here. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, all right, now we have this harlot defined in the book of Revelation. Then we have God's people addressed. So again, the confrontation is against, or is between those around God's people and God's people. That's what the whole of the book of Revelation is all about. It's a confrontation of the church against the world. Satan has deceived the whole world. He need not have any work there. The only ones he's really concerned about today are those who still follow 
God's way and God's will. So I heard another voice from heaven, verse 4, saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. This woman is full of sin and will be plagued. As I rehearsed some time back, we are a people that have become degenerative and sick. We have a plague of cancer, a plague of diabetes, a plague of heart disease, a plague of all kinds and manners of disease, in, the, in spite of the quote-unquote developments of medical science. We are sicker and sicker day by day, month by month, and year by year. Come out of her. Do not live like she is living. Do not think like she thinks. Now, if this great harlot can be defined as America and Israel today, then what he is telling us is, do not imbibe of this country's culture, its social order, its politics and government, or its materiality. Because it is sinning in all those areas. Therefore, if we, America, and the rest of the nations of Israel, can be defined as this great harlot, we had better take heed to the way Americans and Western Europeans are living and not live like they are. Get it? I'm trying to get it, trying to understand that. We have some changes to make based upon this incredible warning, if we indeed represent this great harlot in our own country. Do not partake of her sins and her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. Whatever sins she has promulgated, let her reap double the penalty of those sins. Made desolate, burned, made naked, violently overthrown. If this harlot is America and Western Europe today, and also the people of Israel, then all those prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Minor Prophecies about Israel will be fulfilled in this great harlot. And we will be taken down with her if we still live and think as she lives and thinks. And double the violence, double the recompense for iniquity. Verse 7, <clears throat> how much she has glorified herself. Who on earth today has glorified herself more than America? United we stand. Proud to be an American. See it all over our land today. 
We glorify ourselves as the greatest society on earth, do we not? American ways, American industry, American movies, anything about our life we think is the best thing going, and we wish to impart it to others, do we not? We have glorified ourselves <clears throat> and lived deliciously. In other words, anything we want, we can have. The whole world seeks the American dream. Are our borders being breached by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people every year who want to come live the American dream? Who are living in tar paper shacks south of our borders in Mexico who want to come across and live in fine homes? Wherever I have gone on this earth, I have seen people living in eight foot by ten foot pieces of whatever they can find to put together. Millions and millions of them through all of southern Africa and the different countries I visited. No water except what they carry on their back. No water which they dip that they can receive except that which they dipped out of a place that I will not describe that they take home on their backs to drink. They are all jealous of what they see on TV. And their perception of America is not necessarily middle America. It is of palatial mansions in Hollywood and New York which are portrayed in our sitcoms and our movies. They think we all live that way. And indeed, in many respects, we do. It may not be palatial, but if you have a 1,000, 1,500, 200, 2,000 square foot house, even a seven or 800 square foot house, you have a palace compared to most of the people on this earth. A palace with running water and heat and cool. Electricity. Toilets. Things most of the world only dreams about. And I mean most of the world. We have lived deliciously. Is that true of the Catholic Church and where her sphere of influence has gone? Mostly in southern Europe, the poor sister of the rest of Europe, Spain and Portugal and Italy, and South America, which is poverty-stricken. They don't live deliciously. Catholics don't live deliciously, except where they might be here. And the real Catholics don't even look upon American Catholics as true Catholics. Whoever this harlot is, she has lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she says in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. It can't happen here. <clears throat> we were shocked by 911. Can it happen here? And our government reacted very violently and strongly to try to prevent it ever happening here again. Well, at least that's what they say. More and more reports are coming out that they knew it was coming, just as FDR knew Pearl Harbor was going to be bombed. But the government allowed it to happen for their own purposes. We'll not go into that now. But you're seeing that in the newspapers, the magazines now, that they knew ahead of time that this was being prepared, ignored it. On purpose or not, 
Only remains to be seen, I guess, but they did know something was coming. And apparently, they knew specifically what, even before it happened. So, they allowed it on purpose, so that we could have an oil field that we did not yet have. I think the same thing is true in Afghanistan. We wanted a pipeline through there. And there are reports of the leaders of the Taliban meeting in Texas with President Bush before Afghan, the Afghanistan war started, and they demanded a bigger piece of the pie of the oil that would come through there on that pipeline, and we said, no, we'll see you in the war. And that's a report I've heard. Don't know whether it's true or not, but it wouldn't surprise me any, because we live on economic power, and that's what we want. I sit a queen, and I'm no widow. Resisted Israel? Who would deny that Christ divorced her? America today, overall, looks upon itself as a Christian nation, right? Yes, we do. We don't feel divorced, and yet Christ said he put Israel away, divorced her. No longer is she a queen of Christ, or fit to be but only those spiritual Israelites who will follow God's ways. I sit a queen and am no widow. Not a king in this sense, because she's portrayed as a harlot. So the analogy here is female. If the analogy were of a king, then this king would say, I am the king of the earth. Instead, it's portrayed as a woman and she sits a queen. <coughs> We're increasingly departing from so-called Christianity and going into demonism and humanism and various other things. Is it also a country, ask the question, which says Christ didn't die for me? I sit a queen on my own. I'm no widow. He didn't die for me because increasingly Americans are denying even their so-called Christian faith. Therefore shall her plagues come, verse 8, in one day. Death and mourning and famine. So the plagues are coming very quickly, suddenly, when they occur. Read all the prophecies in the Old Testament about the judgment that will come on Israel. And it says quickly, suddenly, one hour, one day, one month, a very, very short period of time. So we will go from sitting a queen, living deliciously, saying we are no widow and it can't happen here, to very sudden destruction if this is us. And she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. If this is the Catholic Church, or if it's America, when the fall comes, there is a category of people who are going to be sorry to see it happen. Who will they be? Standing afar off for the fear of her torment. I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be destroyed like she's being destroyed, so they stand way back. Saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is your judgment come. Now who's going to weep for her? And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buys their merchandise anymore. 
Who is the greatest merchandising nation on earth today? Liberia? Tokyo? London? It's America. Hands down. California alone, if it were a nation, would have the fifth largest economy of any nation on earth. California alone. And it's about to fall, isn't it? Zephaniah 1 talks about a great economic crash coming in Israel. And this is a crash. Very suddenly, in one hour, as your judgment comes. Merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn, for no man buys their merchandise anymore. Who, do the world, who does the world depend upon to buy their merchandise? Who does Japan depend upon to buy their merchandise? Their cars, their TVs, their DVDs, their PVCs, and whatever else they produce. Who depends on America to buy everything they can produce? China. Chinese goods are taking over America today. Europe sends many of their exports over here. South America, Mexico, anything they can produce, send their exports here. We are the marketplace that the whole world covets. If we can only sell our goodies in America, they say, we will be rich. Was, Ameri was Tokyo, was Japan not a third, fourth-rate nation at the end of World War II? Why is it a leading economy today? Well, it's in trouble financially, but... Why did it becoming, become a leading industrial power? Because they could sell their cheap, no-good junk and cars over here. And then they got to the place where they had real good stuff and cars. But they can still sell here. And they're all over our country. And now, it's, and it happened in Taiwan. It's happening in Hong Kong. Now, China. This is the marketplace that everyone covets, not the Catholic Church. How many, how many people are trying to sell stuff to the Catholic Church? You know of anybody? Maybe they're making these little crucifixes that came out of Christ's cross 2,000 years ago, and they try to sell those to the Catholic Church. That's about it. How can this apply to the Catholic Church, I ask you? No man buys their merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet. And it goes on to several, two or three verses here of all the things. America will buy anything from anywhere. Find wonderful things, all kinds of imports. All manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of, of most precious wood and brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots. Stuff you use at home, stuff you use in your military, stuff you use in your industry, anything they have sold to us. And slaves and souls of men. Now, this could harken back to the Civil War, for that matter, and we have trafficked in the bodies of people, made in the image of God. But maybe it doesn't even need to go back that far. Are we not also making slaves of Chinese Nike makers today? 
working for almost nothing, making $100 tennis shoes that are worth about five bucks for Americans. Those people are working in sweatshops as virtual slaves by the millions to provide goods for America. Not for the Catholics, unless they happen to be Americans. How on earth could this even begin to apply to the Catholic Church? No way. They have stolen from nations and continents, but they've not made anybody rich but themselves. But when this harlot falls, merchants all over the earth are going to cry bitterly and stand way back. And the fruits that your soul lusted after are departed from you. And the, and the things which were dainty and goodly are departed from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The export-import market is going to dry up completely when this horror is destroyed. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her, there it is again, shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. Has Great Britain, well, in tandem with America, maybe to some degree, made the other nations rich? They are nowhere near today the trading combine that America is. Nor were they 200 years ago when the sails of Britannia went around the world. What do they have? Little old dinky ships with sails that take a year to go to Africa and back, two years or three to go to Australia and back. We have huge transport vessels today, and the oceans are clogged with them going back and forth from America to every nation on earth. We have airplanes flying by the thousands every day carrying our goods back and forth across the oceans. There has never been anything like this in the annals of history. Is the Catholic Church doing that? This is one definition that just blows them out of the water, isn't it? So they fear her torment, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold, precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches has come to nothing. Again, hearkening back to Zephaniah 1 and the financial crash that was in the marketplace of Jerusalem, Maktesh. Where is the greatest market today? Everything hinges on what happens in American markets. New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, the, even the Chicago market. The rest of them fear and tremble before what happens on Wall Street. Tokyo's markets, British markets, German markets, Chinese markets, all react to what happens in the economy of America, not the Catholic Church. For one hour, in one hour, so great riches has come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood far off. What, what nation, if the trade stopped, will they all take notice of? There's only one. And cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like to this great city, or this great empire, this great people? Uh, there again, hearkening back to Chaldea, Babylon was only the 
capital city of that empire. The empire stretched way beyond that, just as the American empire does today. And it is an empire. We may not take over those countries and say, those are mine, but we influence them in everything they do. And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, when were made rich, all that had ships in the sea, by reasons of her wealth. For in one hour is she made desolate. Rejoice over her, you heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. We, brethren, have been in the captivity of the Babylonian system as disseminated from Washington, D.C., Hollywood, New York, and all the pagan abominable places that exist in Babylon today. We have a war on our hands to try to live godly in an ungodly society, in a world over and a nation overtaken by materialism and money and gain and things, by one swept away with immorality in a world, a nation, that is utterly ungodly, not only morally and economically, but in every other way. We do not depend upon God for our protection and safety, as he told Israel to do. We depend upon the might of our military. That is whoredom from God. He is to be our husband, to protect us, to put his arms around us, to be sure that we are unharmed. But we look to our own hands, to our own strength, to our own military, don't we? In God we trust, send some tanks. In God we trust, send some smart bombs. Yeah, we trust in God. It's all lip service. It means nothing. We trust in our own arm of military strength. But it says that at some point, the people of God will be able to rejoice over that Babylon because God is going to destroy it. That Babylon that made it almost impossible for us to serve God in the way he wishes to be served, and then began to persecute and martyr us because of it. And that is coming, as we saw in Matthew 24. It's not upon us yet, but it isn't far off. Those who wish to rule the earth through the New World Order, the UN, the Masons, or whatever group you want to talk about, who wish to have aspirations along those lines, the Edomites as well. Whoever has those aspirations in today's world is against true Christianity. That is one thing they wish to get rid of. Those who rule in Washington are trying to get rid of the Ten Commandments in our schools. They're trying to get rid of the Ten Commandments on statues. They're trying to get rid of the influence of God and the Bible throughout our land. They're ignoring Romans 1 and Sodom and Egypt, or Sodom and Gomorrah. And homosexuality is becoming rife. It is a plague that we are spreading to the world. We have cast down all the laws against sodomy. And now there is nothing, nothing to stop it. We are sick from the head to the foot. How can you and I 
escape it. How can we pull away? How can we break the bonds, as he says in Isaiah 52, that are holding us down and causing this culture to walk all over us? He tells us to break them. Every aspect of this society is against God. What aspects of it do we still like? It's clothes, it's food, it's entertainment, it's materialism, it's warfare. What part are we unwilling to give up? What of her sins will we continue to imbibe of and then have to partake of her plagues? Rejoice over her, you heaven and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. How it must have felt when those few who were seeking to obey God in ancient Israel, how must it have felt when they saw Jerusalem fall, when they saw the northern ten tribes fall before that even? And they realized that the prophets had been warning and warning and warning that Israel and later Judah would fall. And then they saw it happen before their very eyes. How must they have felt? How will we feel when we feel the persecution come upon our peoples, upon us as a church, upon those Sabbath keepers who are seeking to obey God in every aspect of their lives? How will we feel when that persecution comes on us and we are being persecuted unrighteously for a change? And then we see that system fall down around us. Rejoice, you people of God, when you see this happen. Because we have been in slavery to the system. All the nearly 70 years that the Church of God began developing from the Seventh-day Church of God and to the Puritans and back to England and Europe, all the history of the modern Sabbath-keeping Church of God, who also adhere to the rest of God's ways. We have been in captivity of Babylon, enslaved to its society, enslaved to its ways. It will finally be broken. But God tells us ahead of time to come out of her, my people, that you not be broken with her, that you not suffer her place. This is a great call to you and me to come out of her. Rejoice over her, for God has avenged you on her, and a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. When our society falls, it's going to fall completely. No rock star is going to stand up and say, I'm going to make a new album now. It will end. It will be over and done. And the voice of harpers and musicians and pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in you. Maybe that's what I was just referring to. All of our music culture is going to go away. You think it's hard for kids to divorce themselves from the music culture of today? Yes, it is. They get all emotionally involved. It's all going to be taken away. Won't be able to turn on the MTV or the radio 
or go buy discs and hear it because God is going to sweep the corruption and the garbage away. And no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in you. Our industry will be destroyed. Does the Catholic Church have an industry? Is that the end of the tape? Okay, heard a click over there. So craftsmen will be gone. Let's see. No craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in you, and the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in you. The making of food, the grinding of wheat, industry of all kinds will be destroyed. Be gone. Want to live here then? Is the Catholic Church known as a great industrial entity? Nah. There was very little in here about religion, is there? except addressing true believers. The rest of it's economic, military, uh, and social moral. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in you, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall be no more heard at all in you. In other words, our society is going to be completely disrupted. People won't be given in marriage and giving in marriage at that time. Now, that doesn't conflict with Matthew 25, which says just before Christ returns, They'll be going on as if nothing had happened. We shall see that even though the great harlot, which I believe is America and the rest of Israel, will be destroyed, the rest of the world will party on for 42 months. That can be shown. But it won't be heard here, because our society will be destroyed. That which corrupted the whole world and made the world rich. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. Are the merchants of the Catholic Church the great men of the earth? Name one. They don't exist. For by your sorceries were all nations deceived. By the sorceries of this great harlot. The word here in Strong's is 5331. It's pharmakeia. means medication. Pharmacy, magic, witchcraft. We have false healers today. Medical society. The AMA. Who with their drugs and their pharmacies disrupt our bodies and destroy our bodies. They give us one drug to solve this problem and the side effects of it create another problem. They give you more drugs for that problem. And then you have side effects from that, so they give you a drug for those side effects. And it's said after you go through seven to eight different drugs treating side effects, the mortician comes to your side for his effect. That's my poetry, but that's what we're talking about. We have deceived with our drugs. Not only with our pharmacies, and who has who exports more pills and potions than any other nation on earth, or any people on earth, is the Catholic Church? No, it's us. And if you get away from the legitimate drug trade, who has the greatest illegitimate drug trade on earth? That's another sorcery was imparted upon our people and upon other peoples as a result 
of activity in illegal drugs. Pharmacon is the word that pharmacia comes from, and it means a drug, a druggist, a poisoner. Will the drugs they use to kill cancer poison you and kill you yourself, themselves? Yes, they can, often do. By extension, it says, a magician. We are a magic kingdom to the rest of the world, economically, culturally, socially, and in terms of medicine. Everything here is magic to the world. And this word probably could also mean religious witchcraft, demonism, and sorcery, but that's already been covered. We talked about seducers and demons and unclean and hateful birds. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. Who slays more people today than anyone else all over the earth? Now the Liberians kill Liberians, and maybe the Chinese whip and kill certain peoples. But if you want to look for a nation or a group of people who go all over the earth and kill whomsoever they wish, you almost have to look at America. And I believe that that's where the prophets and the saints are going to be martyred very shortly now. That's right here. Within Israel and the so-called Christian nations who are denying any Christianity, true or so-called, that they've ever had, and going after humanism, spreading rapidly here, and demonism. So this great harlot, whoever she is, has an awful lot of bills to pay. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. God is going to take care of this problem. And they said, Hallelujah, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. That is, the flames of her fire were not put out. And the Greek indicates it is a fire that is not quenched, it eventually burns itself out. This isn't an ever-burning hell that this is talking about. And then it goes on to describe the marriage of the Lamb. So this is very definitely an end-time prophecy, not something from two or three or four or five hundred years ago or the Middle Ages or the Crusades, but something that happens right at the end of the age. And we will continue this definition more in some other scriptures next week, but I'm about out of time and that's a good place to begin to end today.